preaching, I'm preaching this morning from Exodus uh, chapter uh, 19, but by way of introduction, that has absolutely nothing to do with Lydia and actually nothing to do uh, with uh, baptism. It's just that we're starting a new uh, sermon series uh, in Exodus. Um, last year, we, we did Exodus 1 uh, to 18. And so we're kind of picking that back up again. Um, so just, just a brief word about Exodus in that case. Everyone, I think, here probably knows something about uh, Exodus. It's a story uh, which has the burning bush in it. It's a story that has the, the terrible plagues that God strikes Egypt with. It's a story that has the, the Passover lamb slaughtered uh, for the Israelites. It's a story that most famously probably has the, the crossing of the Red Sea, where, where Moses divides the waters and the people uh, pass uh, through. Maybe one of the most dramatic uh, scenes in Scripture. At the centre of the Exodus story, um, we have God uh, rescuing his people. They are slaves and they are suffering uh, at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so he defeats their enemies and brings them out. And of course, the Exodus story uh, is for us as, as Christians this morning uh, a vivid picture of the gospel, of how Jesus Christ uh, saves us. If you like, it's, it's the, the gospel, but in, in picture book form, uh, to bring home vivid realities to us. And the centre of the Christian gospel is the same as the centre of the Exodus story, uh, which is God is rescuing his people. And Exodus 19 asks, uh, for what purpose? And the rest of Exodus, in fact, for what purpose? Why does God save his people? Uh, let me pray for us, and, and then I'll read uh, the passage and pray. Uh, our Father, um, you are our God, and so we uh, pray you would uh, speak to us. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd uh, who knows uh, every uh, need, so we pray that your word would come uh, to us, that you'd preach to us uh, from uh, this chapter in the scriptures uh, and bring us the comfort and the convictions that we need uh, as your sheep. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 19, starting at verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you uh, forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. 
For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the, the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits round the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest you break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, so why does God save? For what purpose has God brought uh, the Israelites out of Egypt? There's maybe all sorts of right answers you could give if you know the Exodus story. Uh, he, he desired to show his power over the Egyptians. You see that in verse uh, 4 a little bit. Uh, he defeats uh, those who stand opposed to him. Uh, he wants to maybe uh, bring uh, them out uh, to the paradise land, to land flowing of milk and honey. Perhaps he's, he, it's because he, he hates to see slavery, and he does. He hates to see his people afflicted. Maybe that's uh, the main reason. Or you could say, why did God bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He's being faithful to his promises. He's being faithful to Abraham. Uh, but in the passage this morning, we see the central reason. Uh, God declares in verse 4, I brought you out to myself. This is God's desire and bringing the Israelites out, bring them to himself. And it brings us to our first point. God wants us near him. God wants us near him. God says to Moses, go to Israel and say to them, you yourselves, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, you, how I bore you on eagles' wings. You can think of maybe Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit or the great eagles, how they swoop in and pluck the heroes out of uh, danger and take them to a safe place. And God is saying to Israel, look, this is what I've done for you. I've swooped in. I've plucked you out. And I've brought you to myself. I've brought you to be near me. And that is the central privilege of your salvation, God says, to be brought near to me, to be brought near to God, to belong to him, to be 
his people and to have God as their God. The Israelites may have been forgiven uh, for wondering what was going on when they first came to the mountain, verses 1 uh, through to 2. Three times we're told uh, they're in the wilderness of Sinai. What's a wilderness? It's just a wilderness of something where there's, there's nothing there. There's nothing there to see. And what it certainly isn't it is the promised land that God has promised them. It's not a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not even really Mount Sinai on the way to the promised land, Canaan promised the Israelites. So, so why bring us here? Why delay our going to the promised land? Well, surely it is to draw their attention, isn't it? To the central privilege of their salvation, which is to belong to God, to be brought near to God. And that is what they're doing on this mountain, they're being brought near to God. They've come here to, to meet him. Verse 9, he declares, I'm going to come down in a thick cloud. Uh, verse 11, he says, be ready. The Lord will come down. And then he actually does towards the end of the passage. He comes down to the top of the mountain, verse 20, and, the, and Moses uh, leads the people, verse 17, leads the people out of the camp, leads the people out of the camp to meet God. That is why God has saved his people, to draw them near and to meet him. That's why God saves us, saves us Christians, to draw us near, to meet him. Uh, and maybe the concerns rush in. What does God want from us? Why does he want us uh, to draw near? Have you ever had in the post one of those uh, wine vouchers with massive silver letters? Save 75 pounds, it says. It seems so good, doesn't it? And then you look at the small print and you realise that you probably end up paying more for wine uh, than you normally would. And actually, I guarantee whenever you get those, the company's sending them. Uh, is trying to take advantage of you, trying to use you in some ways. Is there small print to God bringing the Israelites to himself, to bringing us near him? That he might might use us in some way? Well, no, we see why he wants to bring them to himself. In verse 5 and 6, he wants them to be his treasured possession. God saves people that he might treasure them that he might cherish them. He says, all people on earth are mine. He's God, isn't he? He created all, and yet in a special sense, his people, his saved people, he will treasure. There will be a holy nation, a people set aside to him. There'll be a kingdom of priests, those who can come before God and enjoy his presence and minister before him and receive his blessings. Think of a man who buys an enormous plot of land. And it's, it's a jungle, it's a wilderness. There's nothing particularly good there, but then he corners out a section of it. And in that section, he labours, and he plants, and he grows, and he clears the undergrowth, and he waters until a garden springs up. A garden which he delights in, full of beautiful things. All the land is his, isn't it? And that piece of land wasn't anything special originally. And yet, that piece of land, I can guarantee you, will become his treasured possession, the one that he takes particular concern over, and set aside for his joy and for his pleasure. That's something of what's going on here. God's saying, I've made all people, but you shall be my treasured possession. And verse 5, I think essentially what he's saying, and he says, obey my voice and keep my covenant, he's saying, he's saying will you have me? Will you have me? 
It's a little bit like the coronation of a king. I've defeated your enemies. I promise to love you and to cherish you. Will you have me as your king? And the people say, we will. Verse 8, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. You can almost hear the trumpet sounding, can't you? You can almost hear the celebrations beginning and the dancing starting. Except the rest of the passage doesn't really feel like that, does it? The rest of the passage doesn't really feel like a coronation celebration. The warnings of death. When the trumpet does sound, verse 16, we don't find scenes of rejoicing. We find scenes of trembling. Why does it feel so distressing here? Well, although God's desire is that we draw near him, we have a reality as well shown us. And the reality is this, we can't approach him. God wants to draw us near, but we can't approach him. A great reality in the rest of the passage is being impressed upon us, and it's just as true then as it is now. But in ourselves, naturally in ourselves, we cannot approach God. And it's pressed home to us in all sorts of ways. We can't approach God because we're dirty. Verse 10 to 14 Moses to go down the mountain to prepare the people to consecrate them in order to meet God. And that looks like washing their garments, getting washed. I mean, children in the room. Children? Oh, we don't have any children. Oh, down there. Children, what, what needs washing, do you know? What needs washing? Clothes. And why do they need washing? Because you use them all day. Because and when you use them all day, uh, they become dirty, don't they? Uh, you wash uh, what is dirty. You don't wash what is clean. You don't go to your cupboard and take out your iron shirts and um, pop them in uh, the washing machine. No, you wash what is dirty. And the Israelites and us, God is saying, is mo- were morally dirty before the Lord. Of course, the washing, cleansing of water doesn't really make them clean. But it points to their dirt. It's to impress upon them um, their dirtiness before the Lord. They spend two or three days, two days, uh, doing this. And so in their hearts and minds, they realize before God that they are dirty. Just as we wouldn't go to a washing basket and uh, pluck out the, the item of clothing we wore yesterday with, with sweat and smell and dirt all over it. Of course, if we did that, it would feel defiled, it would feel gross. Maybe, perhaps actually, if you're a student boy, you might. But most of us wouldn't. Most of us wouldn't. Just say uh, with God, we are dirty before God. And God says we are unable to approach him and defile his presence. Can't approach God because we'll die. It's another way it's pressed home to us. Verse 12 and 13, Moses says, you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain. And if they cross the boundaries, they are to be stoned. They are to be shot. They are to be put to death. And it feels severe, doesn't it? It feels severe. Maybe as you read it, you have a picture of God in your mind as a kind of an arrogant king sitting on his throne and saying, don't come near me. Don't come near me. Or have you executed? Why is it so severe? It's because we're unworthy to come before him. We're unworthy to come before him. Just as a murderer is unworthy to walk free 
or, or a man who's gone and committed adultery, slept with another person, is unworthy to come home to his wife. So we are unworthy to approach God. It's not an arrogant king. It's a just king. To enter his presence is death. That's why he appears in a thick cloud so that people can't look at him. That would mean death. That's why he warns them towards the end of the passage, verse 21 to 25. Don't break through. It's come down the mountain. Don't break through, otherwise I'll break out against you. That's why he appears as he does in thunder and lightning and fire. Danger, he says. Warning, don't come close. Don't come near. Of course, it points to the great reality that God is holy and we are not. And so to enter his presence would mean death. He cannot abide to have something unholy before him. If you throw a log in a fire, it will burn. If you put your your hand on a hot iron, you will burn your hand. And so sinners who enter the presence of the Lord will die. Finally, it's it's pressed home to us. We can't approach God, but rather we must remain at a great distance. God descends on the mountain towards the end of the passage, and Moses leads people to him, uh, verse 17. And this is the climax, isn't it? This is the the great climax, the extra story, God meeting his people. And yet they're trembling uh, with fear. And they're not allowed to get close. Where do they come to in the passage? They come to the foot uh, of the mountain, verse 17. And where does God descend? Uh, He descends to the top. It's pictured for us. It's it's a visual picture of the great distance that must remain uh, between us and God. God towering over uh, our heads and us remaining at a distance. They they cannot climb up. They can't ascend the mountain. It's a little bit like if if you go to Buckingham Palace and you you look through the gates. You look through the gates and you see see the majesty and the glory and the beauty. you, You can't go in. The gates are in the way and the guards will prevent you. So that between you and God, you stand on one side and God is in the distance and between you there's a great chasm that runs and there's no way across. And all these things, the dirt, the death, the distance, it's like a bell tolling, isn't it? You cannot approach God. You cannot approach God. In yourself, he says, you cannot approach me. That's true then. It's as true then as it is today, isn't it? Because not a thing has changed. Humanity hasn't, hasn't changed. Uh, God hasn't changed. He is holy, and we are not. The distance must remain. Tempted to think, aren't we, I think, sometimes that God maybe has gone soft in, on sin. Uh, he's more lenient. He allows more in. Or that maybe it's humanity that's changed, and we've kind of progressed morally. We're more worthy but neither has changed. Those two truths remain the same. God is holy and we are not. Psalm, Psalm 24, uh, I think, puts it for us very helpfully. It might even be reflecting on this passage. Who can ascend, it says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? What's the answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So who can say that? I don't have them. We can say, I have clean heart, hands and a pure heart. It's only when we become aware of the reality 
of who we really are and, and who God is, when we become aware of his holiness and our unholiness, only then do we begin to sense in us the deep lack uh, that we all have. Only then do we, do we really feel the grime of our sin. Only then does the thought of, of coming before God actually begin to make us fear a little bit, begin to make us tremble, that if I came before him as I am on my own, I'd be undone. I'd be consumed. There's a deep chasm that runs which I cannot cross. And of course, only then, only when those realities are in our hearts and minds does the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ become truly good news, and news that I want to be true. God's desire is that we draw near, but there's this great distance, which means we cannot approach. But thirdly, this morning, in Christ we can draw near, but in Christ we can draw near. The whole tone of the passage after verses 1 to 8, which is, which is the high point, the tone afterwards is distressing, isn't it? You can't approach God, and yet throughout the passage, uh, there's one person uh, going up and down the mountains three times. If you count them, Moses ascends up and comes down. Right at the climax, uh, when God has appeared in his most terrifying form and fire, what happens? Verse 19, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses ascends the mountain in, in front of all the people watching. And we're told the reason why God specifically wants that to happen, verse 9, that they may believe in him forever. They look to him and know that he is the one through whom God is at work. But of course, when we look at Moses, he's just a man. And actually, if we know the rest of that Exodus story, we know he's not even a worthy man. But just like us, he is a disobedient man. Chapter 4 of Exodus, God almost breaks out against him for his disobedience and kills him. Of course, Moses is meant to show us Christ. It's helpful to think that the Gospels in the Scriptures are the center of the Bible. And the person of Christ stands in the center of the Gospels. And there's a sense in which, as he stands in the center of the Scriptures, he casts a shadow back into the Old Testament. So that in the Old Testament, there are those various people who take on uh, the shape of the Lord Jesus. They look a bit like him. The shadow of Christ is cast upon them. So they do things that are Christ-like. And so when we look at them, we get a kind of fresh perspective, a glimpse of what Christ has done for us. And what he has done for us is doubt with our problem. Now everything has changed. God is holy and we are not. But what has changed is that Christ has come. And between the two ends, uh, over the chasm that lies between us, uh, he has built a bridge and he's made a way. Think of all the ways the bell tolls. You can't approach me. In all those ways, Christ has dealt uh, with a problem. Uh, think of the dirt. We're dirty before God. Well, when he dies, the Lord Jesus comes and dies and spills his blood. He washes me, not outwardly, as those lights have done here, but inwardly, morally. So I'm no longer dirty in God's eyes. I no longer smell before him. 
Revelation, you get a picture of the heaven rea- heavenly realities, and you've got God's people gathered around the throne worshipping him. And who is it that gets to worship the Lord and gather into his presence and approach God? Who is it? It's those, Revelation 7, verse 14, those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He deals with the dirt. He deals with the death. And Jesus dies on the cross. He, he dies my death. In the language of the passage, he is shot for me. He is stoned for me. He is executed in my place. So that when I enter God's presence, there is no fear of death. Why? Why is it? Because my death has already happened. But in Christ, he dies in my place. Uh, perhaps the greatest of all the pictures, the, the great distance between us and God, the mountain. We can't ascend up to him. So what happens instead in Christ? God descends uh, down to us and takes us back up with him. Have you ever seen one of those stories of a caving rescue of a man being lynched down into the pit into the darkness? He comes up again and he's carrying a puppy or a sheep or a young boy. That's a bit like what happens here. God, God himself comes down. God the Son comes down and becomes a man. As a man, he alone is worthy to ascend back up at the mountain. He alone has the clean hands and the pure heart that is needed before the presence of God. And when he goes back up, he takes us with him. And we're carried by Christ up the mountain, washed in his blood, sheltered by his death. That's why in Christ alone can you draw near to God. In Christ alone, is hope. That's why he says in the Gospel of John that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father apart from through me. Through me. And Christ does all this because the very heart of our God is to draw people near to him. God wants us near, and so he has done everything in the Lord Jesus that we need so that we can draw near. That now, today, wherever you are, now, today, you can come to him and come near to him, to, to know him in heart, to know him in prayer, to know him this morning in worship. And, of course, one day, and to know him and to be gathered around his throne, to worship him in his eternal presence. Let me ask, what is holding you back? What is holding you back from approaching God? in your life. Let me speak to you if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not a believer, maybe you don't think there's a, a God at all, or maybe you think there is a God, but you're not sure what he's like. This is what he's like. Exodus 19 is a God that you cannot approach on your own, a God before, before whom you are unworthy in yourself. Uh, but uh, God, who, who beckons you nonetheless and says, it is safe to come near me. I've sent my son, the Lord Jesus, so that you might know me. In that sense, God shows himself in Christ, that he is there. Christ is a real historical person in history. And he sent the Lord Jesus partly so that we can look at him and so believe in God, just as he sends Moses. 
And he asked the same question as he asked the Israelites here. Will you have me? Will you have me? If you're a Christian this morning, there's all sorts of ways that we're prevented from coming to God. All sorts of things that hold us back. Maybe you're someone who's lost sight a little bit of the centre of the gospel, the centre of salvation, the central privilege, which is to know God and his son, the Lord Jesus, and you've maybe become tangled in the weeds, perhaps the, the, the ethics of a sexual teaching, teaching of sexual ethics. The, the church teaches has, has put you off, or some other teaching has driven you away, or maybe it's the church itself. Just, you find many people in church are hypocritical, and you see the church has done many terrible things, You've lost sight of the centre of the gospel of who God is. Maybe it's fear. You're very familiar, perhaps, with the understanding that God is a God who thunders and strikes lightning and comes in fire. Well, I don't want to approach that God. Maybe it's guilt. I suspect this is true for a good deal of us. It's guilt. You're supremely aware of your unworthiness to draw near to God. If you like, your sin haunts your mind. And your sin is constantly before you. So the smell of it is always in your nostrils and the noise of it is always in your ears. Maybe it's the guilt that prevents you from drawing near. Maybe it's the distance. Now God is in the heavens and you are on earth. It's hard to really care about him. Yes, I'll turn to Jesus to be saved and receive eternal life. But to be honest, week by week, day by day, apart from on a Sunday, you think very little about God. What is holding you back? What is holding you back? God says, Christian, this is my desire in rescuing you. I want you near to me. Come close. He says, you are my treasured possession. You are precious to me. And I love you. Do not be afraid of me. If you draw near, I won't harm you. It doesn't matter what you've done, however, how, how dirty you feel, however unworthy you feel to come before God I want you near me and this is how much I want you near me I've come myself and I've shed my blood and I've taken you up the mountain to be with me so that in God we might find the joy and rest and peace that we can't find anywhere else in our lives let me pray for us Our Father, pray that you would uh, press home to us the truths in this passage which are, are most helpful in our minds for drawing us close to you. Thank you for your desire that while we were lost and while we were at a great distance from you, uh, you came uh, to us, not because we asked you to, not because we wanted you to, but because you uh, wanted to draw, to draw us near. Pray that uh, in our lives we'll be more and more shaped uh, by a great desire uh, to know you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.